So, many of you were with us over in the fellowship hall for the first session of CE this morning, uh, Christianity Explored. But for those who weren't, we had a good discussion, and uh, this is sort of sort of part two of that discussion. Not really, not really. This will stand on its own, so you, you won't be lost by any means. But um, it's a great discussion where we've been having, and it's been in, encouraging and challenging to learn more about who Jesus is, about why he came, and about what that means for us, what his call is in our lives, what he wants from us. This morning, though, we're looking at a passage that's it's kind of turned on its head a little bit, and that's because Jesus did it that way. And, and uh, the message this morning is called, What Do You Want From Jesus? And I thought, you know, normally from the pulpit we talk about, you know, what Jesus wants from us and, and, and things like that. But uh, this, this morning is going to be especially uh, interesting, I think. It's going gonna, it's gonna to call into question some of our own motives and, and heart's desires and the things we long for and, and the things we want. So um, as background for the passage that we're going to look at, I want to read what happened in verses 32, 33, and 34 of Mark chapter 10. This is just background for our passage today. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Because Easter time is approaching. His, his suffering is approaching. And so he's warning his disciples for the third time what's going to be happening. And he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So in Mark chapter 10 there, Jesus has just warned them for the third time what's going to happen. And he doesn't pull any punches. He's not speaking in mystery. He's not speaking in parable. He tells them right out, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. He's going to be put on trial they're going to mock him, they're going to spit him, and then spit on him, and then they're going to kill him, and then on the third day he's going to rise again. So he's getting really explicit with this. There's no mystery. He's telling them what is going to happen. And this is the third time. Well, our passage this morning is the remainder of that chapter, from verses 35 through 52 of that chapter. And so this is going to be the disciples' response to, uh, to what Jesus just said what was going to happen. And so... As we open there and start reading, I want to read a little bit about what these guys say. Starting in verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So very interesting. 
Put yourself in, in the, the place of the disciples. And you've just heard Jesus is getting more and more explicit. He's making it more and more clear what's going to happen to him. The, the mystery should be being removed from your mind. There shouldn't be a lot of question about what's going to happen. Okay, so he's just explained it for the third time, what he's going to do, the suffering that he's going to go through. He's just explained it, laid it out very clearly. What do you think your response would be? I'm not sure what mine would be. Maybe maybe grief. Maybe sorrow because you love Jesus and you've been traveling with him. Maybe you'd feel a sense of loss because you really thought he was going to be this great earthly king. And now he's talking about dying and what's the deal with that? Or maybe you'd just be confused because you've got this idea of Jesus as a great earthly king. And of course that means he can't die. So what does he mean he's going to die and rise again? What does that look like? What? So a lot of things might be going on in your mind. But would it ever occur to you to ask for status in the kingdom. I, I don't know because I wasn't there and you don't either because you weren't there. But very interesting reaction. It seems strange to me what these guys want. Seems pretty brazen to me that this is what they say to Jesus. First of all, they walk up to him and they say, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Whatever we ask. Now, there are lots of parents in the room and probably if your child came to you and said, you know, ask permission to do something, but they weren't going to tell you what it was, but they wanted permission, you'd be a little hesitant probably, right? That's like handing someone a blank check, right? Here, just take this and go do, do you know. Seems strange, and that, brazen, bold, that these guys would have the, uh, chutzpah is the, is the Yiddish word, have the guts to come up and do this, to, to say that to Jesus. Strikes me as very strange, but that's what they ask. They say, uh, do, do for us whatever we want. And uh, they say, we want top status in your glory. We want top status in your glory. He, he said to them, first of all, what do you want me to do for you? And this is their answer. Now, what's strange is he doesn't rebuke them. What, do, do you think you would have rebuked him? You, you just said, hey, I'm going to go die for you. And suffer these horrible things. And then they come up and say, hey, uh, give us whatever we want. Give us a blank check. You know, I would be tempted to rebuke them. And, you know, maybe so. But I think it's interesting that Jesus doesn't. He doesn't rebuke them for this. It seems like he's, he's been down this road before. And if you look at the other two times in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus laid out what was going to happen. This happens in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and Mark chapter 10, all around verse 30, 31 in that area. In each of those three chapters, he lays out what's going to happen. And the first time, he lays it out, and Peter rebukes him. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. So Peter rebukes him. That's the first response. The second time, you remember what happens? They get into an argument about who's the greatest. As a result of, or immediately following, this second time when Jesus said what's going to happen. And so here this third time, and they come up with a cockeyed question like this, and uh, Jesus doesn't even rebuke them. He just, he knows the direction they're going, been down this road before, and so he just says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And I think that's interesting. Can you imagine if Jesus just said that to you, came up to you and said, uh, what, what do you want me to do for you, Tim? That'd be pretty neat, right? That's a pretty special kind of thing. Pretty special kind of thing. Verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. 
and I've translated up here, we, we want top status in your glory. And that's because the idea of sitting at the right hand or sitting at the left hand had to do with what would happen at court. So if, if a king was holding court or he was at a banquet or something, the person he wanted to give the greatest honor to, he would have sit at his right hand. And then the next person would be on the left. So you're closest to the king there, right? So you're right there in his presence, close to him. You, you know, you're not lacking for conversation. You just turn and talk to the king. Pretty cool, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a sign of honor, of special privilege and position. And that's what it means to sit at his right hand, sit at his left hand. Several times, even in the Gospel of Mark, Mark says this, well, Jesus says this about himself, that, uh, that Jesus, when he goes to the Father, will be seated at his right hand. So that's the relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus, when he ascends back to the Father, he sits down at God's right hand, the place of, of highest honor, the place of highest privilege. So that's a little bit of background about what that honor means. And these guys come up to Jesus and they say, hey, we want that seat. And since there are two of us, we want the other one too. Pretty brazen, huh? Pretty brazen. And that, that, that's what they wanted. So Jesus asked them the question, what do you want for me to do? And they say, give us great seats. We want status. We want to be right there. We want to be honored. We want to be in the, in the position of honor in the highest place, aside from yours, Jesus. But we want to be right there. That's their response. And so I want us to start asking ourselves that question even, even now. What do we want from Jesus? If he were to walk in here or walk up to you or whatever and ask you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that? How would you answer that question? What would you want? It seems a little bit strange to us that the disciples would ask this question, but, but they do. Now let's look at Jesus' response. He, again, he doesn't rebuke them. He says, you don't know what you're asking. He said to them, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what I'm going to go through. This idea of drinking, drinking the cup or being baptized with a baptism, it has a lot of precedent in Old Testament uh, writing in, in Old Testament theology. I'm just going to quote from a, a couple of times. First of all, later on in the, in the Gospel, of Math, or Gospel of Mark, excuse me, 1436, Jesus is going to say, remove this cup from me. So it's, it's a symbol of something. It's a symbol of maybe the suffering that he's going through. Psalm 75 and verse 8, listen to this. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's heavy stuff, right? It sounds like judgment. That sounds like judgment, punishment, retribution. Pretty heavy stuff. Isaiah 51 talks about the cup of staggering and the bowl of wrath. That, that they would be struck so hard with the wrath of God that they would be walking like they were drunk. That's how hard they got hit by this, Okay. The cup of staggering and the bowl of wrath. So it's a, it's, a, it's a heavy judgment kind of thing. Jeremiah 25, 15 talks about the cup of the wine of wrath. And so when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going uh, to drink? It should have brought to mind in the disciples and probably did these kind of passages. Because these are, these are not obscure passages in the Old Testament. The disciples would have known this. Can you drink the cup 
that I'm going to drink. Very interesting. Uh, Jesus talks about the judgment that he's going to go through. And they're saying, we want some of the glory. We want some of the honor. We want the good things. And Jesus says, well, before we get there, let's talk about what comes before. Can you drink this cup? Now, what wrath is Jesus going to suffer? Think about that. What wrath is he going to suffer? Just, just the wrath of being beaten? That's, that's a bad wrath. He gets whipped. I mean, we, we know about the crucifixion and what all goes on there, right? Being spit upon, being shamed. Is, is that the real wrath? Is that the real suffering that's going to happen? This cup that's being talked about in, these, in Isaiah and in Psalms and in Jeremiah, these other places in the Old Testament, that cup that's laid out there is talking about the wrath from God being poured out upon sinners. And Jesus identifies not just the idea of wrath and judgment. He identifies that cup and he says, that is my cup. I will drink that cup. I will take that punishment. I will take that wrath. He's going to get to this a little bit later on. But the wrath that he's taking is not from Pilate or from Herod. The wrath that he's taking is the wrath of God against sin. God hates sin and he must punish it. And Jesus is saying, I am volunteering for that punishment. I am volunteering to bear the wrath of God, to drink that cup. Can you drink that? Or the baptism. Baptism is a similar idea. It's kind of a, it's kind of a newer concept, sort of a New, New Testament idea or intertestamental period came about a little bit before jesus but it's the same idea of of being baptized being being thrown into judgment being thrown into that kind of wrath bearing that kind of wrath can you be baptized with that baptism their their answer is shocking to me because if i knew the old testament as well as the disciples did and i don't and i knew these Passages about the cup of the wrath of God and that it's so strong, it's so powerful that it makes you stagger like you're drunk. I wouldn't want anything to do with it. But Jesus says, you want, you want some of that? You think you can, you can bear that? And they say, uh, we are able. We can do that. We can take that. I have no idea what was going through their mind. I thought about this and wondered... I don't know if they just thought Jesus was testing them and if they just gave the right answer, they'd be good to go. I don't know if that was it. I don't know if they were uh, identifying with, with uh, something that Jesus, they thought Jesus was going to go through that wasn't really going to be all that bad. But looking back on it after the cross, for them to say, yeah, we can do that, seems, seems absurd. It seems preposterous. And Jesus said in verse 39, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, if you think about the, the lives of the, of the disciples, the apostles, and I don't, I don't know the whole history, but if you look at them, tradition says that almost every one of them was martyred for his faith. So they did get to bear that, that drink that cup and, and go through that baptism. They did get to do that. It wasn't an exciting thing, but Paul talks about that and, and, and rejoices that he gets to, to be involved in the, in the sufferings of Christ. That's what it meant for him to be, to be a follower of Jesus, was even to be invo- involved in that suffering. 
But Jesus goes on, but to sit, verses verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And Matthew says it's been prepared by the Father. That glory that, that they were seeking, that honor, that special place of privilege, Jesus said, that's, that's been prepared for somebody and, and I, it's not mine to, to give out freely to, to you because you're asking. It's already been prepared. It's already been put into place. All right. Now, what's the response? Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So they got angry. The other ten heard it and they got angry. I, I think that's, that's kind of funny. It wasn't that they were upset with, with James and John because they asked such a dumb question. Come on, you guys, can't you figure this out? You know, you need to, we need to move on from that. We've already been down that road. That's happened before. That's not why they were angry. They were angry because James and John got there first. They still had the same mentality that there was something in this for them. There was some better life for them from following Jesus. There was some kind of honor. There was something special going to happen to them. They were going to be people of privilege. They had been arguing about who was the greatest. So they're upset that James and John got there first. Now, they're probably probably secretly a little happy that you know Jesus gave them the answer he did. But still, they were upset that these guys got there first and asked for that first. That's the mentality they had. They had been wanting status. They were thinking somehow being involved with Jesus, following after Jesus, is like riding his coattails into glory. They had it in their mind. It was in everybody's mind who the Messiah was going to be. He was going to be this earthly king. He was going to throw off Roman rule. He was going to establish his kingdom forever. He was going to rule there from, from Jerusalem. He was going to be a great king, a mighty king. And his followers were going to be right there with him, apparently in their thinking. That's what they were thinking about Jesus. That's what they were thinking about. Involvement with him was going to mean. They, they were thinking that, that they could ride his coattails into glory. That was, that's what was on their mind. So the, their answer to the question when Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Was, hey, we, we want status. We want honor. We want position. James and John came to Jesus because they wanted status, position, and prestige. And now Jesus is going to seize a very teachable moment and help the disciples understand what real service looks like. Real service. This is in verses 42 through 45. Verse 42 says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus is going to start the conversation by looking at those who think that others should should serve them. And he uses as an example Gentile lords, those who are considered great among the Gentiles. And I was thinking about what kind of examples I could draw from, you know, from history or from our modern culture, and I thought, who needs to go farther than the Bible? The, The defining event one of the great defining events in the, in the history of the nation of Israel was their time in Egypt. And think about Pharaoh there. Think about what Pharaoh did with them, the way he lorded it over them. He would lie to them. He would tell them, yeah, you can go out, but no, then he'd, he'd break his promise. He would, remember remember the, initial, 
the initial thing with the bricks, yeah, you need to, you need to make more bricks, but you, you know, I'm not going to give you straw. Like this is the way they were lorded over. This is what Pharaoh was doing. He was, he was exercising his authority over them, subjecting them, holding them down. That's what he was doing. Also remember a, another great Bible story that probably every one of us knows, King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember him? And the book of Daniel starts off with what's happening with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided that they were going to honor uh, the one true God instead of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar puts down this decree that you have to bow down to the statue. They wouldn't do it. And what does he do with them? Chucks them into the fiery furnace. Holding them down, making demands on them. I am Lord and you are servant. Bow down and serve. And that's the way People like to rule. I'm sure uh, that was a, a pretty good time for Nebuchadnezzar to make people kneel and bow to him. Pharaoh probably enjoyed it. That's what they wanted to do. Jesus says, that's the way the Gentiles do it. Let's do it differently. Verses 43 through 44. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus has a different expectation for his followers. Leadership looks different in the kingdom of God than it does in the world. It's exercised differently. Do you remember what happened in John chapter 13 with the Jesus washing the disciples' feet? Remember that story? They, they were there, and they're, they're all together, all the disciples and Jesus. And remember, Jesus is Lord. They, they call him Lord, and he is the Lord. And he's the teacher, he's the master, he's the rabbi. And what does he do? He gets up, and he wraps a towel around his waist, fills a bowl, and goes around the room on his knees, watch, washing nasty, stinky feet of his disciples. And he says to them, what I'm doing for you, I want you to do for each other. This is what real leadership looks like. This is what real leadership is. It's service. Service to the people you're leading. That's real leadership. That's, that's true greatness. So Jesus values greatly service to others. And that's in great contrast to what the disciples had just asked for. We want position. We want to sit at the head of the table. We want to be in the great spot. We want to sit in the... In the big fancy chairs. That's where we want to be. Instead of on the floor with the bowl in your hand, washing a stinky foot, which is what Jesus wanted them to be doing. So Jesus himself illustrates how much he values this kind of service leadership by pointing out what he's going to do in his own life and mission, by pointing to his own ultimate sacrifice. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, theologically, this verse is the key, the center to the whole thing, to this whole passage, this idea of, of what Jesus is going to do. Now, it says, he says, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man. Who, well, we know Jesus is talking about himself. He's, he's referring to himself as the Son of Man, right? But what does son of man mean? We don't talk like that. That's, that's not a normal thing for us to talk, use those kind of terms. 
So uh, what's, what's going on here? What does Son of Man mean? Well, if you look at the Old Testament and dig into it for a while, it comes back again to the book of Daniel. And it's this vision. I'm just going to read it to you. It's in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. And this is a very powerful messianic image of what's going to come, who the Messiah is going to be. Now listen to it and get a picture in your mind of who, who this person, this Son of Man, is going to be, what he's going to be like, how, how is he going to rule, what's he going to do, what are some characteristics about this guy, okay? So listen as I read this and get a picture in your mind. This is Daniel talking. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, reference to the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, that shall not be destroyed. Now, what picture do you have in your mind? Great, right? He's great. He's powerful. He's been given dominion, rule, authority. He's been given position, right? Privilege, power. Very great. This is a high ruler. That's the picture that comes to mind when you read that, right? Son of man. Okay? So if you were a good Jew of that day, you would know your Old Testament, and you would know this messianic expectation. You would know Daniel chapter 7, and you would know this son of man passage. The son of man is presented to the ancient ancient of days, and he receives all these wonderful things. All right? So you have this picture of this great and mighty and awesome Son of man. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man, think about all those things. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's really messing with their paradigms here. They've got this idea of Son of Man, and probably they were okay with that Son of Man idea because remember, they wanted position. Well, this son of man from Daniel chapter 7, it seems like he's been given all this great power and position. He would have a court and you would want to sit next to him. You would want to be in that position of honor, right? So when Jesus says, even the son of man, all those things appear in their mind. and They're thinking, they're thinking you know, there is going to be some glory for us. There is going to be a great throne room for us to be in sitting next to him. And we do want that kind of power. Even the son of man, they're good with that so far, came not to be served but to serve. And that ought to mess with our minds a little bit because he's the greatest man ever to walk. He's the divine son of God in our midst. He's the greatest. He's been prophesied from the beginning. He is God himself. And here he says, I didn't even come to be served and you want to be served? He says to his disciples, that's a big deal. So this idea of son of man, I mean, we look back from our, from our position, you know, 2,000 years after the cross, and we look back and we understand these things, and we, you know, we think of Jesus as the suffering servant from Isaiah and all those things, and rightly, right, we should. We should think of him as those things. But when he says son of man, he brings to mind this Daniel 7 passage, and you hear angels and you see flashing light and lightning and those sorts of things because that's the image of Jesus. And he came to serve not to be served. He came to serve. And how is he going to serve? 
Well, he finishes there in verse 45. There at the end of verse 45. I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, I said this is theologically the, the core of this whole thing. This is, this is a, a very important thing for us to take away from, from our time today, okay? Is the theology of this, that he would give his life as a ransom for many. That means that we, we're the many, by the way, that means that we were in a position where we needed to be ransomed. Not that we had been taken hostage, but that we were in prison. We were locked up. We were like slaves. We were like slaves locked up. And there was a price that had to be paid to get us free. This idea of ransom, nowadays we tend to think in terms of somebody who's been kidnapped and a ransom demand is made so they can be set free. And it's similar to that, but not quite. But it's this idea of if, if you wanted to buy a slave or get a slave out of freedom, let's say your friend had had to sell himself into slavery because, because he, he needed the money or whatever, or for some reason he was in slavery, you could buy him out by paying this ransom and that would spring him. That would get him out and he would be free because of that. That's the idea of ransom that's going on here, okay? So he gave his life, he gave his own life, Jesus did, as that price to be paid. That's the sacrifice that he made. Now, to whom is he paying that price? Think about that. Who is that price owed to? You see, we were the many in this passage. We were slaves. Slaves to what? Slaves to whom? Well, slaves to sin. We were sold into bondage to to sin. We were slaves. And because of our sin, we deserve the wrath of God. It's God's wrath. And so when I ask the question, to whom is the price paid? The price is paid to God. He's the one we've offended. He's he's the offended party in this situation. He's holy. He's pure. He's just. And here we are, rebellious sinners at heart. And so we have offended him horribly. And there's a, there's a just penalty that we deserve. And so when Jesus said, I give my life as a ransom for many, he is paying a price that's owed to the Father. The Bible says that God does not withhold judgment, does not withhold punishment from, from those who are guilty. Well, that's us. And Jesus stepped into that equation. He said, I'll take that punishment that's owed and pay that price for the many. And we're the many. We get to benefit from that. There's a price that we owed that we couldn't pay. It would take us eternity to pay. And if you can do the math on how that works, and I can't really, you're always paying it. So it's never paid. That's what hell is. That's why it's eternal. Because it's it's an infinite debt that you owe. And you, and you pay that by spending eternity forever separated from God, paying that infinite debt. Eternity and infinity have no end, have no cap. There's never a time when you can say it's finished. But Jesus, this is a question that was asked in our Christianity Explored time about, about Jesus himself. You see, Jesus, when he pays that penalty, he himself is infinite. He's God. He himself is infinite. And so when he... 
as infinite Son of God pays that price, He can meet that infinite debt that we owe. And because He's infinite, He can meet the infinite debt that we all owe. He can pay that. And that's what He does on the cross. That's why it's such a huge deal. It's such a huge deal. He wasn't just telling us, showing us how, how we should be servants to other people. He was doing that, but not just that. He wasn't just giving us an example of how we should live our lives and sacrifice for other people. He was buying us out of slavery. He was buying us out of death, eternal death. And it says that he put himself in our place. He didn't just do it as an example. He put himself, the very wrath that was due to Brennan because of what he's done, Jesus stepped in and bore that very wrath in my place so that I wouldn't have to. Praise the Lord. And he offers that to you. That's the truth. That's the theological truth about what's going on in this passage, about what Jesus says. It's a huge deal. But he goes on. There are so many other passages in the New Testament I want to read about this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, write this down. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Righteous Jesus becomes sin. We, who are the sinners, we get to have his righteousness. We actually get to become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We were cursed because of our actions, because of our heart, our rebellion against God. And he stepped in and became a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus stepped into that spot, became a curse for us, that he could pay that penalty, and thereby redeemed us. Titus 2.14 Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself for us to redeem us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ like a lamb. This is called substitutionary penal atonement. I don't often like to throw out theological terms because it's just a term, but this one's really helpful. Three words, substitutionary, penal, atonement, substitution. Jesus stood in my place as my substitute. Penal, he paid a penalty, the penalty that I deserve because of my sin. Atonement, so that we could be bought back, so that we could be made right with God because of what he's done. Substitutionary, penal, atonement. If you're taking notes, write that one down. That's one to remember. That helps you remember how this whole thing works. And why it's so important that Jesus be God and that he die on the cross in our place. Substitutionary penal atonement. So after the demands the disciples have made, it's refreshing when we meet blind Bartimaeus. All he wants is his sight. He wants his sight. Verses 46 through 48. And they came to... This is back in Mark chapter 10. Verses 46 through 48. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So here's Bartimaeus, and probably everybody knows this story probably, but I think it's fascinating. 
Remember back, uh, I think it was last week in our Christianity Explored time, we talked about the rich young man. It's earlier in Mark chapter 10, even if you weren't in our Christianity Explored class, you can read it for yourself. You probably all know the story, but it's, it's verses uh, 17 through uh, about 31, I guess is the whole story there, about the rich young man. And I've told this story several times recently. First of all, we know a couple things about the rich young man. He was rich. <laughs> he was young. And when he came to Jesus, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing Jesus did was try and correct his, his understanding of what good actually means. That, that good is, is in comparison to God. And so he wanted to get that idea in, in the guy's mind because the guy thought that he himself was pretty good. And how we know that is Jesus said, oh, well, uh, you know, what's it said in the commandments? And he lists off five or six of the, of the Ten Commandments. What would your response be if I listed off five or, six of, five or six of the Ten Commandments and said, you know, have you kept those? Well, because the answer is no, we haven't. But this young guy says, yeah, I, I've, I've done that since I was a kid. That's his response. So he thinks he himself is pretty good, okay? And so Jesus looks at that and he understands that this man does not have any idea what the true meaning of the law is. He thinks he's obeyed all the commandments, so Jesus goes right to the first commandment. What's the first commandment? Anybody know it? You shall have no other gods before me. He goes right to that commandment. And he says, all right, go give all your stuff away, sell it, give all the money to the poor, and then come follow me. Because he knew, looking at this man's heart, that his money was his God. The Bible says, you shall have no other gods before me, and this guy had money as a god before before God. And so he had broken the first of the Ten Commandments. Hadn't even gotten out of the, just the first sentence, the way Jesus deals with it. Okay, so that's the guy's response to that, okay? He, he hears that, and he goes away sad because he didn't want to sell his stuff. He had a lot of stuff, and he didn't want to sell it. So he leaves Jesus sad. So now we've got Bartimaeus. Three things we know about Bartimaeus. The name's Bartimaeus which it's, it's funny, it tells you in there that his name, uh, that he's the son of Timaeus. Well, Bar is the Aramaic word that means son of, and it says son of Timaeus, Bar Timaeus. I don't know why it tells us that. I don't have any idea, but it does. So we know his name is Timaeus. We know that he's blind. He's blind Bartimaeus. And thirdly, we know that he's a beggar. So he doesn't have anything. We're going to find out later in our story that he does have a cloak. But that's probably all that he has. But what's his response? When he hears that Jesus is walking by, what does he say? He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, contrast that with the disciples a little bit earlier. And they're coming up to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, do whatever we want you to do for us. Okay? And those are, those are his disciples. And here's Bartimaeus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, of course, son of David, you've got to look at that and see what it means. We should all be doing that, okay? When, when we run across a, a word like that or a phrase like that that we don't understand, look in the concordance in the back of your Bible or go online and find this and look up how it's used in the Old Testament because they understood it. It was code for them because it was a common language. It was a common subject matter that they all knew that we don't know so well, okay? So I had to do that. I had to go look it up. And what did I find? Son of David. This is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You all know this, by the way. Every one of you probably knows this. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government 
shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's the son of David. That's their expectation. That's another picture of the Messiah. And the emphasis there is on, on, his, on his deity. The emphasis is on that he, he, he's the divine son of David who's going to come and set up his eternal kingdom. And so that's the son of David. Now, here you have a beggar sitting by the roadside. And that, that's how he refers to Jesus walking by, son of David. That is impressive to me. That's impressive. It was a title. It brought to mind the Davidic kingdom. That if you remember when David lived, it was like 900 years before this. And that prophecy was given, well, Isaiah, so maybe six or 700 years before this time. But the prophecy had already started back with, with David and with Solomon. That this, there was going to be a king who was going to come. And so it's a thousand-year-old prophecy almost. The kingdom of God would be established forever when the offspring of David would take his rightful place on his everlasting throne. And many rebuked him, verse 48, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus is persistent, though. Keeps crying out, and finally he gets Jesus' attention. He gets to make his request. And his request is, I just want to see again. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man and said to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. Verse 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Now, go back to the rich young man, the story about the rich young man who had tons of stuff and couldn't part with his things to follow Jesus. He went away sad because he didn't want to give up his stuff. And here you've got Bartimaeus. We only know three things about him. His name and that he was blind and he was a beggar. Didn't own anything. And the one thing he did own, he chucks it off, jumps up and goes right over to Jesus. He's completely willing to give that up. He's willing to follow after Jesus. He's willing to come to him on Jesus' terms. His stuff means nothing to him compared to knowing Christ. What a contrast. So all he asks is, I want to see again. Now, verse 51a, Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Same exact question as before. So remember what happened with the disciples. Remember what their request was. And now you've got Bartimaeus, and Jesus asked the same question. I'm sure his disciples are right there listening, and they remembered pretty well when he had asked that question last. And here is this blind beggar Bartimaeus standing in front. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, they knew the, the answer not to give to that. So we'll see what he does say. The second half of 51 there, and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Let me recover my sight. The disciples wanted status. They wanted position. They wanted power. They wanted all those things. They weren't wanting to ride Jesus' coattails into glory, into, into great things. That's what they wanted. And contrast that with Bartimaeus. I just want my sight. I have eyes, but they don't work. That's all I want. I just, I just want to be able to see. It's a very humble request. He wasn't asking for some thing for himself. He wasn't asking for some position. 
He just wanted his sight back. A very humble request. So what's Jesus going to say? No lectures. No big theological points. No stories. He just says very simply, Go your way. Verse 52. Your faith has made you well. Because he trusted in Jesus. Bartimaeus knew, if I can just ask Jesus, if I can just get Jesus to do it, he can do it. He can do it. And he kept crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. All I want is my sight. I just want to be able to see. And that's the kind of cry that Jesus answered. No lectures. No correction. Go your way. Your, your faith has made you well. Now let's look at Bartimaeus' reaction to that. The second half of verse 52 there. And immediately he recovered his sight. That's huge. And followed him on the way. Now the first thing about that is the miracle. He recovered his sight. We read past that. He recovered his sight and went, you know. Do we see that kind of stuff happening? Do we see miracles happening? It should, it should be a big deal to us to see, to hear that, that Jesus didn't touch him. He didn't spit. He didn't, you know, crack his back. He didn't do anything. You're, go your way. Your faith has made you well. That's all he did. That's a miracle. See, our problem with miracles is we operate in the natural world, and we think the whole world operates like it always does, based upon natural laws. And a miracle is a disruption of natural laws. And we, in our, our naturalistic mindset, humanistic mindset, we don't like it when, when the laws of this world, the physical laws, the natural laws are tweaked with. We, we don't even think it's possible. And here, Jesus just slips right in there, tweaks with the natural order, and all of a sudden the guy can see again. It's a miracle. It's God stepping into and, in a sense, violating the natural law to do whatever he wants in it. Anytime a miracle happens, that's what it is. And so in one sense, yes, miracles are impossible because we define impossible by natural law. This didn't come about by some natural law. This was Jesus suspending natural law and making happen what he wanted to happen. It was a miracle. He could see again. And what's his response? Bartimaeus just follows him. He just follows him. He gets up and he follows him. And you know, that's a, that's a pretty common thing. Mark 131, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Remember she was sick? She had a fever. Jesus goes in, raises her up, and what does she do? She wants to serve. She wanted to serve. Mark 5, verses 1 through 20, that whole story about the, the demoniac with the, uh, in the, in, lived amongst the Gerasenes and he had a legion within him and all that kind of stuff. Remember with the pigs and the hill and all that kind of stuff? Remember when, when the guy was, when the demons were cast out and he was in his right mind, clothed and sitting intelligibly before Jesus, having a conversation with him, what did he want to do? I want to go with you. I want to go with you. I just want to be with you. I just want to follow you. That's the natural response. And that's what Bartimaeus did. He just followed. So our passage today is really an enormous contrast between what the disciples wanted and what Bartimaeus wanted. Same question. What do you want me to do for you? Same question. Radically different answers. 
And because they wanted status, because of what they were looking for when, when he asked the disciples this question, there's this huge theological truth given right there in the middle. So in a sense, I'm very glad they asked that question because Jesus spelled it out about what real service is and about how Jesus really serves us in giving his life as a ransom for many. So, in closing, we all need to ask ourselves this question. What do we want Jesus to do for us? It's the question he asked the disciples. It's the question he asked blind Bartimaeus. Do we want Jesus to enhance our lives like like the disciples did? Are we just looking for a better life now? Then we're going to be sorely disappointed like the disciples were because Jesus doesn't promise that. You know what? He, He said actually following him was going to be a painful thing. He had just told the disciples, you will drink this cup and you will be baptized with his baptism. There's going to be persecution and tribulation that comes with being a Christian. That's a guarantee. So if we're looking for life enhancement from Jesus, we're going to be disappointed. Or do we just want Jesus to open our eyes? Do we just want sight? And like, like he did with blind Bartimaeus, he, he gladly answers that request. Gladly answers that request. You know, Jesus began his ministry in Mark 1.15 by saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But in order to do that, it requires spiritual sight, true sight from us. And that sight Jesus will gladly give you if you ask him for it.